This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. What a pleasure to be back. I love these forums. I, I beg to come back to UC San Diego. And when I heard that Kate Boo was going to be here, and I, we've known each other for a long time, uh, I'll say a few words about Kate, but but one of the things I was very proud of is that she was an early senior fellow at the New America Foundation, which I had a role in helping to launch with some of, uh, other friends, and it became a prominent think tank. But we used to be a small little outfit, uh, and Kate, we were then hoping that we would bring in a few people uh, that were stars. Kate was one of these people that everyone knew um, would become an extraordinary uh, star in the sense that her dexterity... Uh, and depth of her writing. We had others in that early crop of fellows at New America Foundation, Margaret Talbot, mm-hmm. uh, 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 Deborah Dickerson, others, um, Gregory Rodriguez from Los Angeles, were, were extraordinary thinkers in minds, and all of them were very much at the cusp of some of the biggest issues that we were facing in the country mm-hmm. at that time. I usually don't praise people, or when I do praise people and say nice things, it's usually setting them up for a down, oh, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, later. You know, I, I learned that from Bob Woodward. Um, but, but I will say with, with Catherine, I am genuine uh, in, in saying this. And let me give you a little bit about, about uh, Catherine's background before we have our conversation. She has done something which many people in political journalism don't. When I, we're going to be talking about her book, of course, uh, Behind the Beautiful Forever's Life, Death, and Hope in a Mumbai Undercity. And it's one of the most extraordinary books for me because I tend to wonk out on books on political economy. This is a political economy book, the best written political economy book I've ever read in my life. And, and we talk about political economy, it sounds so sterile and distant uh, in a way, and it sort of protects us to sort of say, we're talking about political economy, but this is a, a, a book about people and lives and divides, people that were cast away, left behind. Uh, it's also a reflection on those that did the casting away, those that did forget others, those that are in the overcity, uh, wherever that overcity may be in the United States, uh, in Europe, uh, in India, that you wrote about. So she's written a lot uh, in her life uh, uh, of writing about poverty, about divides, about people um, who have handicaps. She won the Pulitzer Prize. I went onto the Pulitzer Prize website today, um, and, and the Pulitzer was given to the Washington Post in the year 2000. Uh, for its work at that time on on really community houses of those with intellectual di- disabilities. And it says very bluntly at the top, to the Washington Post, but particularly for the work of Catherine Boo. Uh, and, and so if there was any doubt about who deserved the prize, uh, she did that. So won the prize in 2002. In Japan, uh, where I've done a lot of work, we, they have a, a, a distinction called living national treasure. Uh, people in pottery and kimono stenciling and, you know, all, uh, all kinds of Japanese arts that it takes, uh, uh, designates people who bring uh, the richness of culture uh, and they want to celebrate that, promote that. And in a, in a sense, I think we, it's a sad thing that we don't have such a distinction in the United States. But I think Kate is one of the living national treasures in writing today with soul. Uh, she won the MacArthur Genius Award. Maybe that helps uh, raise and create a profile and a spotlight on those people who are doing extraordinary things that benefit society. But won a MacArthur Genius Award in 2002. Uh, and, of course, for this book, she won the National Book Award in 2012. And it was, it was picked as one of the very top books, uh, favorite books of the New York Times. Um, and so 
we're talking to a very special person here today, and I'm really looking forward to it. I've been trying to get this uh, rolling for 17 years, I think. So, um, Kate, thank you very much for joining us today. Okay, I just need to say my reporting last week went so badly. You have no idea, so, um, so that feels like something that happened to somebody other than me. And I Let me first poll the audience. Um, because I neglected to mention that Kate is a staff writer at The New Yorker, uh, and I want to make sure I put that on the table because, of course, I'm at The Atlantic. But how many of you subscribe or, or, or read The New Yorker? Yay. How wow. many of you read The Atlantic? <laughs> Yay. We're working on you. We're working on you. So, uh, uh, so congrats on that. Thank you. So, how many people read the San Diego Union-Tribune? All right. Yay, great. All right. Yes, That's, there we go. It's all about so, local journalism. So, Kate, let me, let me begin. I mean, I, I, I do... I, I've just reread this book and, and to come through it, and it's such an extraordinary story. And I just want to know, I want you to share with the audience the whys and the who's. Why did you begin this book? And can you just share with us some of the extraordinary personalities uh, that, we, that I want us to all to have a facility with? Okay, so I think the why of the, the book... Um, goes to to my I, when I first met you I also that same year I met my husband who's Sunil Kilnani he's an intellectual historian and a patriot and so all of a sudden I was spending a lot of time in India which which at the time had a third of the world's poor um, and the questions that I was wrestling with in the United States were you know what does poverty look like in the global mm-hmm. market age and in, when I was in India, I thought, well, there was record government spending to help the poor. There was this amazing grassroots movement um, for transparency called the RTI, which was mm-hmm. like FOIA in this country. And all of a sudden, for the first time, you could really look at what was happening, what the government was doing, and how it was affecting historically poor communities. And no one was doing that work. And when, you're, when, you, when you spend a lot of time in poor communities, you develop this sort of gaydar, that's this equivalent of gaydar that where you, you know when you're looking at, you're listening to reporters who are actually doing the work in those mm-hmm. communities. And what was clear is that, that there were so many people who had opinions about what was going on and not that many people who had real deeply embedded information. And I thought, well, let me try this. And I set out to do a project that eventually took four years of my life, and um, became a real labor of love. But, um, but you set out to map a slum. Right. You map the human dimensions of a slum, the economic dimensions of the slum, mm-hmm. the police corruption and governance dimensions of a slum. And, uh, you know, it's just not something a writer sets out to do every day. <laughs> but that's the, that's the point, is that so much of what we understand about, you know, about policy about economic effects. It's not field tested very hard. It's it's it comes from the top. You know, what is the statistic? It's the it's the God shot. And the problem is that that we think we know so much about what's really going on in low income communities that we don't want to invest the time to understand. And and if you can shine a light, if you can really spend time listening. Like I think if we're gonna get serious about poverty alleviation globally, it's not going to happen until we, we dropkick our stereotypes and start listening harder to people whose, whose lives and our experiences are what 
our history actually is. So for those who have not yet read the book, and I hope some of you have, and if you haven't, I, I, <laughs> I recommend so strongly that you do spend some time with this book. Um, and I think it will change you. It's changed me. It's affected me since I've uh, read this in the way I look at people who are having a hard time, as I look at people who are working so hard on the street corners in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. running water on a very hot day to people to get a buck uh, when I throw away something. Uh, it's changed me. And, I, and I'm saying these things, realizing that many of you have not yet read this book, so you may not understand what we're talking about. <laughs> but, but as we do to it, you know, I think that one of the things that you do so beautifully is you tell a story through families and characters living next door to each other, and, and uh, I won't remember them all. You, you knew, but Abdul, Abdul. Sanjay, and mm-hmm. Sonal, Sonal, and uh, uh, F- uh, Fatima. Manju, Fatima, Fatima, one, Fatima, one leg. Yeah, yeah Fatima. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and on. And, and, but the characters run through the whole outfit. And, and, mm-hmm. and while you were there for, th- I th- by my count, three and a half years. I'm still there, so yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the intense, you were there. And when I, when I read the afterword mm-hmm. of this book, what struck me, in the, you know, the, the tale of, of, of the interaction of these people and the way they lived, the way they died, the way they were jealous of each other, all of this stuff, you were there for most of mm. the things, including the, the thieving, right. including the, uh, uh, the police encounters, including uh, some of the horrible reactions to people having died. And so could you just give us four or five of the key personalities so that we can talk about them within the context of this? Well, I would say that one of the things that's really important to me intellectually is to have three or four or five characters because typically there's this, you know, this idea that, that a reporter goes into a community and picks the most super virtuous or the most right. super talented person or the person who's the absolute worst and tells those stories. But real low-income communities are not like that. They're incredibly diverse um, and people are jostling for some of the same things, and they're interacting together. And the only way you can convey what, what poverty and aspiration actually look like today is, is to consider it from the point of view of a range of people. So one of the, the individuals I wrote about was um, a young man named Abdul Hussein. And he was a teenager. He didn't know how old he was because his parents were so poor. They were so busy when they were growing up that they weren't keeping track of the years. And he by the time you meet him, is, um, is supporting a family of 11, a family as big as a cricket team, uh, buying and selling the recyclable garbage that scavengers, workers, pick up at the international airport in Mumbai. So some of you may have been to Mumbai, and you may have been to that airport. Well, it supports an entire economy of people who, who take the newspapers and take the empty plastic bottles and sell them by the kilo, and that's what they live on. Um, and when I asked one of the other people in the book, Sunil, to describe Abdul to me one day, he said he keeps his head down day and night. That was the first thing he said, because Abdul's father was ill, and he'd been sorting recyclable garbage since he was six years old. And he was this just person in the middle of this open space in the slum who was hunched over garbage, his face in garbage, day and night. And part of my work and part of what I love about my work is getting to know people who you might stereotype in an instant. I mean, we, you, know, you make decisions about people in three seconds. You probably already made your decision up about me before I open my mouth. People make up their decision. They make up their minds about what somebody like that is like. Um, 
in an instant. And what I found once I started listening to Abdul is that he had, he had an absolute ethical philosophy um, about the value of even the worst life. He was a, you know, he had this, this moral dimension to him that even his own family didn't know because he was the workhorse of his family. And one of the things that I'm trying to do in the work is to, is to not just look at what people do and how they do it, but to, to take in what people think of the world and to take in their views, not just of their own so-called plight, but their views of other people, their views of power, their views of beauty. Um, so that when you meet somebody like Abdul on the page, what I'm hoping is that you're, gonna, you're not going to see some alien freak. You're going to see somebody who's, who's as complex as you are, because that's what I see in my own reporting, is I'm meeting people who are every bit as, every bit as complex and problematic and interesting as myself and the people I love. So he's one of the people. And then there's, there's um, a woman named Asha, and she's, she's in her 40s. She's a mother of three, including um, a remarkable daughter who's poised to become the first uh, college graduate in the history of the Anawati slum. And her husband is a thoroughgoing alcoholic. And she's looking around her world, the world, and she says, the government is stealing so much opportunity from low-income people that really corruption itself is the only opportunity that remains. And she determines to, that to give her daughter the life that she didn't have, she's going to you know, work the government programs and, and basically beggar other people so that her daughter has a chance for a better life. Um, and she just asserts herself as a fixer. Exactly. And yeah. it's, she's, she wants to be the new slumlord. And she's a woman. And women mm. aren't supposed to be slumlords. But... Um, she is smart and she's determined and she asks an essential, essential question to me that I hope sort of goes over the arcs over the book, which is, why is it my corruption when the big people say it's right? And I think that's something we can think about in our own time now, is the message that gets sent um, from, from on high and how people who are struggling take that message. You know, one of the things that struck me, particularly about Abdul Hussein, was when I think back at my friend's that when at his age, I don't know anyone that was as industrious as he was mm. in my life. And so one of the things that was just striking to me mm-hmm. was you've taken us into a completely different world and, and, and you've almost become detached from, you know, the, the modern, the rich, the wealthy, mm. although it sticks its head in sometimes via movies or the Intercontinental Hotel or various right. things that it's you a, talk the, about. The community is surrounded by five and, luxury hotels. And this kid is, I mean, shadows. this kid is, this kid is sorting junk and, 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 Garbage all the time, right. and he becomes like the Andrew Carnegie of of of, of uh, junk and right. garbage. And but there are rivals out there. And so one of the other things in there was just that the the and I think it's one of the things I want to ask you about the what you insights you've gained about the human condition in people is that I think many of us have this notion that in small towns where people are poor, impoverished, have trouble, ultimately people help one another. But you see the worst sides of competition, rivalry, and nastiness among the poorest people in the world living next to each other. And, and why is that? And, yeah. You know, in, in a slum and in our own communities, it's because there's a decline of permanent work. I mean, this is an absolute crisis. In, in the slums in India, in this one particular slum, in my surveys, I found that six people out of 3,000 had permanent work. And I would go back... Six people, just want to get... Six yeah, out, out of 3,000. Wow. And... 
But then you can say, oh, that's an only in India problem until you think about, I mean, you, you know, the work of Katz and Kroeger at um, Princeton and Harvard who, found, who took a look at uh, net job growth over the last 10 years, and they found that 90% of it was of the impermanent, uh, non-traditional variety. Mm. I would, my friends, I would come back from India, and they'd say, wow, it must be must be so different there. And I'm like, well, you, how many jobs have you had in the last two years? I mean, any, if there's any writers in the room, you know, you know that instability is the, you know, is, is the way of life. It's, um, but when you don't have those, when you don't have that factory floor, you don't have that space where workers are together learning about each other's families, learning about each other's worlds, when you're in this task gravity, um, these, invis- these, these really non-communities, when you're at the the corner as a day laborer, are you going to even know your work, the, your coworker of the week? Those relationships are going to change. And the difficulty of people sort of organizing and finding their common cause becomes that much more difficult. Um, and I think that's a, a situation that serves, serves wealthy interests very neatly. Did some of these families and people you were dealing with, you know, I think about... Um, Fatima, one, one leg versus the neighbors before, as that was building, or as, as I think it was Cynthia, if I'm remembering the name correctly. Good job. <laughs> uh, uh, who was a rival uh, of, of uh, Abdul in the garbage um, brokerage business. And, and her family you know, suffered somewhat at, because the Abdul was succeeding mm. and, and bring, building trust. As you, as you were injected into this and interviewing everyone, mm. and one of the interesting things, if you when you talk to Kate and hopefully buy the book later and look at, it's worth going back, if I may say this, because you know, I'm not going to spoil any endings, but go read the end of the, you know, the afterward. Um, because in that, uh, Kate talks about her method. Yeah. It's extraordinary. When you read this book, it reads like a novel. And, but it isn't a novel. Everything no, is, is uh, you know, what I would call the hyper multiple interviews, and people got tired of you. Oh, they got they got bored with they you. They got so and Abdul, you know, and, and Abdul, not even that. Abdul asked if you were dim witted. Yeah, because um, I would ask the same. You know, you know, and I'm ask. just wondering how did you pull this off? Because how did these rival <laughs> factions not try and begin using you as a carrier you do for have, their agendas? You do have to sort of move around in communities in any community, not to get captured by one group. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you, but I mean, the rivalry is the story right now, right. and it's the story. It sounds so Games of Thronish. It is. It is yeah. really. It's you know. I mean, and what do you do if you don't have permanent work? If you're not one of those lucky people who gets that, who are you going to blame? You're going to blame your neighbor who has it. Mm. I mean, and you have this. I mean, we don't think enough about the toll of inequality on families, on communities, on you know, and this. The sense that, I mean, if you take a community like the one I'm writing about, which is surrounded by wealth, um, people aren't, you know, people, I'll just give you an example of, of that community in, in Mumbai, Anawadi. Um, one of the young men there, who's Abdul's brother Murchi, said, he said to me one day, he described the setting better than I ever could, really. He said, everything around us is roses, and we're the shit in between, which is a beautiful, my private title for the book was The Shit in Between. But if you think about, 
If you th- my editor didn't like that. Um, but if you think about that... You got a lot of references to shit in the book, though. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it comes up a lot. But, uh-huh. you know, but to think about it, so he's describing this community, like this home to all his family, all his friends, basically everybody he's ever loved as shit. And I think that tells you some of the, the damage that gets done in low-income communities in a time of inequality. And here, in, in the, the place that the low-income communities then working in D.C., people are, you know, they're on Instagram every day just punishing themselves with what they don't have. It's a terrible time. It's a terrible time for people who are on the losing end of this business. They are, um, and they're looking at their, the young people are looking at their parents and, and mm-hmm. in, you know, all across the world right now. I'm in London, where I also work in... Um, in low-income housing, you know, they're, who are they? They're, they're, they're blaming their neighbors. They're blaming their parents. They're, um, it, it's, it's just causing tremendous damage that we don't take seriously as a society because we don't, we don't look that close, and we don't want to look that close. We want to have, like, the, you know, the, the view, like, um, these people. These mm. people do something. And the, the more that we create a these people instead of, an, you know, individuals, individuals suffering complex hopeful people, um, the easier I think it is for us to live with these staggering levels of inequality. Did you ever feel that people were performing for you? I mean, Asha, uh, again, for those that, that mm. may not know, Asha wanted to become the slumlord, but this was the political operator. I mean, she right. was uh, going to set herself up to be queen, and she became a fixer in the village when people had problems and then began essentially taking a piece of the, you know, a cut, right. piece of the action for everything she did. Um, and and as it, but it occurred to me that you're this famous woman journalist who came in. I'm just wondering mm. whether your presence inspired some of the women to act out or to do certain things they might not otherwise have done. You know, you you never really know how you affect mm. the mm. community that you're working in because there's no control group. Um, so, you know, it's all, this mm. is this is uh, my speculation. But what it seems pretty clear to me. Because I videotape, I can watch. Right. Then in the beginning, you have a very stilted relationship. Yeah, with you people. had an You're... army of videotapers? No, me. Oh, oh. Me. oh, I thought you had another young man who was, or, or a couple of young people. I had, were... I had some translators yeah. come I in see. and out, I and see. then one, one amazing woman, uh-huh. Unity Tripathi, who, who mm. worked with me for, um, for most of the book. But, um, but when, when people are in, in, you know, in these, these situations, you can't pose for a... The right. photographs you can't yeah. you can't perform for years on end if you right. are wanting to give your families a better life in this kind of yeah. economy and this this tremendously volatile economy. So eventually, people forgot about my presence. But I would say something else that was significant that um, people didn't know I was famous reporter. They didn't have that context mm. for that. Um, but they also thought that. A woman and a woman, um, you know, whose hand looks like my hand, which doesn't look like other people. Like they didn't think that that kind of person would be a reporter. Um, so they didn't associate. I, I don't think they truly believed that I was a journalist um, until I did a small piece for the New Yorker and it got translated in a local newspaper in Mumbai, and then they got to read my work, and then they they realized that I wasn't. Um, they thought I was like a Christian lady trying to steal children at some oh. point. So you know, but then they realized, oh no! And I think they felt they felt relieved for me because I wasn't insane that I was actually doing. I think they sort of didn't know what to 
make them, and things got easier after that. But there was still this one guy who said to me, I think like till two and a half, three years later, he said to me, I don't want to talk to you because I'm waiting for the real journalist to show up. Ah. Yeah. The other th- bit of the book that, that both depressed and amazed me, but it made me think a lot about the United States and our un- what, you know, what Mike Lind and other people have called the underclass mm-hmm. is the exploitation of them by authorities, by the police, the, the way in which the police extracted um, such money and bribes well, not really bribes, it was extortion mm. from, from uh, people in need and created, uh, and, and basically it was, a, it was a very corrupt culture with the, with the local police department um, and the justice system and the interaction. Die. I mean, I think the writing about the justice system, the courts, how all of that interacted, you know, the, the executive authority, the woman that was the executive authority kind of coming in and kept saying, hey, she would you know, help for 20,000 right. rupees or something like this, that that entire culture of web of, of corruption mm-hmm. that sat on top of exploiting the poorest people in India. It was, it, you know, I mean, one of the, the interesting things about this kind of reporting is that you find things that you could never have anticipated. And one of the things that I, I found was that because in, in other, in, in, there, was, there was more transparency in other um, sectors of the society and that so for low-income people, they were saying it used to be there was a social contract where people, a, an officer would come and take a bribe once a week. And then they said it was, all of a sudden, it was, it was night cops, it was day cops, it was desks, it was, mm. and, and people were, were absolutely stunned by this change that happened. But I try also to, to show in the book, because um, I try not just to write about people as so-called victims, but I try to write about the people who are doing the damage as well and name their names. That's very right. important to me. Um, but those people, those, the, those officers, those teachers, they were trying to get ahead in this economy. Again, they were, you know, you see it. It's not like, it's not like the village under Mao. You're seeing what other people have, mm-hmm. and you say, why is it that I don't get that too? And, and I think that it's something that applies in this country as well, is that when licit means of social mobility break down in a society illicit means are going to prosper because people aren't going to sit on their hands and give up their hopes for their children very easily. Mm. Um, and I think it's something that we have to be concerned about here again. In the, it, you know, as you describe, you know, the, the, the police and, and what was going on, I was amazed that I couldn't find anyone's name that you didn't mention. <laughs> so, and these are real people. Real people. Everyone's Doing real people. Real Everyone's yeah. named. Mm-hmm. And you told extraordinary stories of corruption, of bribe-taking, of extortion. Mm-hmm. Um, were, there, were there consequences of that? Um, you mean after the... Yeah. I think, that, you know, for Thakul, individuals... Officer Thakul, am I saying that? Right? I would say, I would say that, that there were consequences for that, that police district. Uh-huh. Um, but, I mean, I'm back there pretty regularly, and... You know, there's new things sprout up. It's not like you're right. like fix it. It's you yeah. know, for for I, you know, I think that there's this way in which uh, the power of journalism can be exaggerated by journalists to make them feel better about themselves. Well, the, the other thing that was striking <laughs> is you know you had the kind of this ecosystem of just nastiness, toxicity, and mm-hmm. you know it was also great humanity. Yes, you know great humanity, and that's always an important part of the story. 
Um, and I don't want to get into the to the great drama of the book, but there you know there was and a big friendship. collision between families and people and egos, mm-hmm. and it was awful. And it led into the court system. And I couldn't tell what you thought about the Indian court system, which seemed to run by different gravity than all of this corruption. It seemed, in a way, to come. So I'm just wondering whether or not you saw it as 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 maybe a one redeeming part of the Indian system, that somehow people are protected at some level. I think, I mean, I think the high courts in India are, you know, of of some truly great thinkers and reformers, Mm. and some of the, some of the most hopeful um, aspects of uh, Indian life come from the courts and um, their, their battles. But what, what I found was that the courts that served the poor were, there was something called fast track courts. And, you know, Mm. I'd heard because I, my husband um, and I know a lot of people in the courts. We'd heard for forever that these were huge reforms, that these were good things. But once you go inside the courts, what you find is judges who were running 37 trials a week. It had nothing to do with justice for long... I mean, it had nothing to do with justice. It had right. everything to do with fixing the backlog, the backlogs of cases. And again, you know, I'm seeing it in my work in the United States, too, that so much... Like people are looking for targets and outcomes, and and our societies are getting very good at getting the numbers right, mm-hmm. while really selling out the people, the capacities of people whose whose lives are in the balance. And you can't understand the cost of that to a society, the, like the potential that's squandered unless you pull in close. And we don't do that. One of the vignette, vignettes you talk a little bit about the book, which is which is fascinating, is this, I think it's a watering hole or a spring or, or pond, pond? It's a sewage lake, Sewage I think. lake, yeah, okay, it's sewage a lake. lake. Of Excuse Petro- me for, you know, glossing over that. I once you know, fell into the it sewage, The sewage <laughs> lake, yeah. So, so there is this vignette that you shared in, in, in your own commentary about what you did that you actually fell into this <laughs> and that your, your uh, feet came out blue. I needed to work on my situational awareness. I yeah. was taking a picture, walking backward, videotaping and. And you fell right into the right sewage into lake. Yeah. And the sewage lake people collected frogs there. And mm. there were, I guess, fish. And they, were, and they dumped the corpses of their dead animals. Yeah, so their right. animals would drink from the sewage the goats, lake and die. Right. And then they put the animals back in the And so people had TB and malaria. dengue fever and mal- yeah. malaria and all of yeah. this. So my question is, you're very upfront about some of the health challenges you mm. have. Did your husband think you were crazy? I mean, at some point, you, you, <laughs> you know, you, 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 know you, you, yeah. you do tell... The story that you, you're upfront about some of the health challenges yeah. you have, but this was a pit of where many, I mean, I just want to be upfront, many of the people you talked to that you saw interacting died in the short time a period you were there. I mean, when you count everyone who died in this book, mm. it's, not, it's not trivial. Yeah. Um, that's, okay, that's a deep question, and I would say that my, you know, my husband understands that if I'm not working and engaged, then my I've, I've had autoimmune disease since um, since I was a teenager. So if I'm not working and engaged, I'm sitting around feeling sorry for mm-hmm. myself. I get worse. Like what makes me what ma- gives me energy and strength mm-hmm. is the people that I get to report on and mm-hmm. the sense that that I have you know I have a job to do and they keep me going. But I will say that my husband I got into altercations with the police while I was working there because I was. Um, and I was investigating uh, homicides that they had covered up They'd, because the, the victims were mm-hmm. poor kids and they just labeled them disease deaths. They didn't feel that they were. And so the police started fighting back once they 
knew that. And at that point, I mean, at that point, my husband was like, are you sure you really want to do that? But by that time, he'd also met some of the people that was, you know, in, in my book, and he understood. It's one thing to think, oh, she's doing the work, and it's one thing to know about the young people who were, who were seeing what it meant to them when their, when their friend gets murdered and the death is covered up. Like, you know, once you see what that signifies to other children in the same situation, that it could happen to them, um, once you understand the stakes of it, it stops. It, it begins to make more sense as a calculus, and um, so I think. I mean, I think he knew what he was getting into when he married me. And it's not always a picnic, but um, but I, he he fully supported the book and his wife. When as I was reading, she was in distress. As I was reading this wonderful book, I um, actually, I mean, I, I know this sounds obnoxious, but. I began, I tried to put myself in your role, just mm. sort of seeing your reporting, because I knew you were reporting this, so really, and, and the people, and, and just you fall in love with some of these people that, that are there. You so can't just the do question I had is, is, is how, what was the hardest part of this for you? Because these were real human beings who had extraordinarily uh, horrible things happen. I think the hardest part. I mean, part- I think the hardest part for me, if I may, is the rat poison, the, the people that were committing that, suicides. Yeah, and, and, and the. The question there's there's a there's a death in my book of an amazing young woman. She was of a scheduled cast, a, the Dalit cast, formerly Untouchable, and she mm-hmm. decided that her life in marriage would be worse, that it would be better to die hmm. than to have than to experience um, the caste discrimination that she expected to to um, face in a village where she was being married off to, and and she methodically prosecuted that decision. Um, and I, you know, she was a, a, a just a, a young woman full of life and energy and humor. And you know, when, like, when, the, so the question that you have as a writer then is like, can you make people care about it almost as much as, you know, how can you sh- you bring the reader in to this tragedy, like what the world loses for losing a young woman like that, and. Um, you know, so you can't just be sad. You have to bring all the energy that you have into into bringing those losses alive, and and not just, of course, individual losses, but the the tremendous social dilemmas that. Um, that Was those that the hardest signify. part of the of, of writing for you? I think that you know the, the the hardest thing for me was the sense when I was writing that I like I had this idea that first of all that 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 people only wanted to read these books. That were about the indomitable human spirit. That you know, so that I was telling something that was realistic, and I didn't think that I wasn't sure that anybody was going to care. And so the hardest thing was to try to make, you know, people who don't, they, people who don't necessarily rate in any, in 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 so many of the categories that we as a society think are important. People who didn't necessarily go to school. They weren't necessarily, um, you know, they had flaws. Um, how to make you the reader care about those individuals who got which which pushed me toward finding a different form for it, a more immediate form so that you could go directly to the characters you didn't have the individuals you didn't have to listen to me describe the history of caste or how many islands made up Bombay like you could just get straight to the heart of these individuals who you might not otherwise. Um, meet and then sort of let them take the story. Um. 
One of the things I noticed in the book, um, it was interesting you used the term gaydar a minute ago, is that you had eunuchs in the story. The eunuchs come yes. in and play this unique role that you might, yeah. I'd love to hear, hear what you thought. And, and you had the Hussein family and some others that were Muslim families, largely surrounded by Hindu families and, and, and that had this. But I, you know, as, as a gay man who was reading this, I wondered, was there any, were there any gays in the picture? And I didn't find any of that in the book. And was it, was it not there uh, at all uh, in your observations? Or was it there in ways that were pretty... I mean, not well, that it, it has was, to be about that, but you had every other dimension. It was, yes. Yeah. And so, so, you know, and I did write about um, the Hijra's, the third sex, who... Um, and, and the ways in which they were being disenfranchised. They couldn't right. get the vote um, because they were, you know, like, like they were migrants. There were other people who the people who had political power decided weren't worthy of having but an these equal eunuchs, voice But these I mean, explain what the eunuchs are in terms of, I mean, I know what eunuch is, but, mm-hmm. but, but they, they seem to have a place in that community. Absolutely. I mean, there was, in, in that community, and it's it, different, different communities have different ideas, but it was that they had been born of sexual uncertainty, which is an elastic mm-hmm. category, and that they had so much bad luck that they could come to the door and take your bad luck away. Hmm. So you always wanted a eunuch at a wedding so that, you know, the bride and groom would do great. Um, and so they, you know, so they had a a stature. They were, they, were, they were in some senses pariahs, but they also had a power because if they put their evil eye on you, mm-hmm. they could harm you. But in terms of, there were many young um, children in the slums born girls who identified as boys. But of course, that was, it's, this is an incredibly patriarchal traditional society. The um, people, um, the families would, would, would go to great lengths, poor families, to to make sure that their their children conformed, um, and it was a it was a small tragedy. And, and again, when you talk about the go back to talking about the courts, that's the courts are a great force for good in in um, challenging those kinds of those kinds of hardened gender categories in India. But it's going to take a long time. And as always, and you know, with social change, it's it's going to be the. Um, it's going to take the longest time for people, low-income people, and you know, risk and inequality. They're not, you know, it, it is harder to take a risk when you have less in every regard, and the punishments are mm. harsher in, in in this country as well. I think that you know, the thing that that just screamed out at me in this in this story, uh, and all everyone's stories is just everyone was striving. So when talking yes. about the eunuchs, they mm-hmm. wanted to vote, right? And they were that you know, they wanted to vote. Right. And it was the one thing, illusion or not, Indians, whether they were in a slum or not in a slum, mm-hmm. felt like that was their one time they were equal, that they could vote, and that people were keeping them from, from coming in and, right. and, and, and getting that vote across a, a, a good cross-section. And then there were people who were powerful in the slum who had two votes. They were registered right. with two different... So it was, you know, it's, it's again, if you, you know, this, this idea of a, you know, we have so many ideas about democracies, our own included. Mm-hmm that when you get close, it's a bit more problematic than it seems from a distance. Right, and so there was that, but I think the other thing that, that just struck me about why this mattered is being on the edge of this global city that mm. was you know, becoming, you know, the airport was getting gleamier and glossier and yeah. bigger, uh, and you had the great hotels and the stories, and all of this was around, as you said, you know, the shit in between all the roses. Um, 
And it reminds me of that kind of Jeremy Bentham idea that happiness is a function of relative deprivation. Mm. That before the go-go times, before the global, you know, the, the promise of, of globalization lifting all boats that, that, that may be more illusion than real, mm. that, that I love this line in there that people thought they could go from zero to hero. Mm. Um, and that, that they, anyone could have this, you know, ticket, find the golden ticket somehow right. to get out of this. So I'm interested in that tension between what's, what's sort of the richness and, and, and wealth that's been created around the world and what this has done to impoverished people, not only in India, but, but everywhere. When when you when, when you're in low-income communities um, that where people can recall what it was like when sort of everybody was more equal in their misery, right? Nobody's longing for that. You know, mm. they aren't really. They're you know people people get up in the morning and want to feel like um, they can find that silver thread mm-hmm. through that maze to something better. Um, so that that a lot of the nostalgia that you might have expected to see about this time before intense competition it's just i'm not finding it it may be somewhere um but in the communities that i'm working in um and maybe people who are 70 have it but people who are 20 don't people Mm. who are 20 want a little bit of what everybody else has and again it's like you know if if you have a society which we i think we're we're really losing it where the springboards work and you can you can you can strive you can go through the normal channels and Make a success of yourself. Um, if we actually lived in functioning meritocracies, um, that hope might be, you know, pure good. But we don't actually live in functioning meritocracies. We live in we live in societies that are really excellent at rising. You know, taking people who have been born with a little privilege, who are mediocre, and you know, lifting them up, while people of extraordinary talent in income communities. Um, gets squashed out. I mean, our destiny is a zip code in so many ways, as the work of Raj Jetty and others have suggested. Mm-hmm. As, you, have you, as you've looked at this, and, and maybe Raj Jetty would be a very interesting person to comment, do you, do you see things improving in India? Or, because you wrote this in 2008, 2009, 2010. Mm-hmm. So we've had eight years. Right. What's happened in those eight years? No, I think that, I think that there's still a long way to go to mm-hmm. Um, create a transparent and accountable system of services for for people without power. Um, this, you know, the the kind of accountability that our society is not that accountable to low income people, but it's it's slightly more. I mean, for instance, in India, that um, right now people who use the RTI um, have been, I was threatened personally, I, you know, there have been dozens of people who were killed for trying to get information that legally they have the right um, to have. So it's a real difficult transition for the elites to give up that power and information to the citizenry. And that's, it's, it's going to be a difficult transition. Um, but at the same time, when I go to Mumbai, um, I'm still feeling a, a, a lot more hope, and, and the, the thing that one of the striking things is that nobody in the communities where I work now is thinking, "Oh, let me go to America." Mm. Everybody's like, "You know, America, that's finished, that's over. We're in the right place." And you know, <laughs> feeling sorry for the, the you know the Americans who are living in their cars, um, and feeling terribly sorry for the Americans who get um, killed in movie theaters by. Gunmen, or you know, in school. So, 
Um, so that's been a really interesting shift, and that's happened just in the last. When you were in the slum, one of the things that got was interesting to me was there was sort of a current affairs literacy that surprised me, or I sensed mm. there was. Um, is that true? I mean, there seemed to be people talking, communicating, who knew about the movies. There was storytelling was active. Or, I mean, or they were. I mean, they, they're like, the people who collect garbage, they were and they were intricately linked to the the global economy. So. Right. When there was the, 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 the um, construction in, in advance of the Beijing Olympics listed the, lifted the, the price of their waste to record highs. And that was in the beginning of 2008. And then the financial, the collapse of banks in... 08, 09, uh, yeah. Yeah, put their, their, their incomes in the toilet. And, and you know, that's, they were, the work that they were doing was the same every day, but the results in this global economy... Oh, completely different, and they, you know, they're, they're, it, it, you know, and it's, it's true. It's true for so many workers, in, in, you know, that we, we tell people, we tell young people, oh, your economic future is in your control, but that's, you know, that's one of the great lies of our time, mm-hmm. um, and so people had to know what was going on in Wall Street to know what they had to do to feed their families by collecting plastic bottles. I mean, just think of it. Well, one of the fascinating things, I mean, just give people a slightly big, I, mean, I don't think this is giving it mm-hmm. away, but Abdul's storage bin, storage mm-hmm. locker, right? Which was, which was he, was, he was hoarding certain things until the price yes. went up, right? So he had a sophisticated system right. of organized garbage that he was holding on to certain things until the price rose. Right. And I think he was devastated after he ended up in the court legal system mm. that his younger uh, brother, I guess, yeah. was Mitchie. Mitchie. Mitchie, yeah. Mitchie was, yeah. was, you know, complete slacker, incompetent, <laughs> and, right. and didn't understand uh, at that time the kind of, you know, the, the, the way this, this economy worked. Right. But it reminded, I mean, it just, it just reminded me, you know, of, of um, you know, something Richard Branson uh, mentioned it when I interviewed him once about the kind of people who was hiring, because I said, mm-hmm. you know, what about in our court systems, and we're talking about the United States at that mm-hmm. time, uh, but of, of, of people who've had a bump in the road, who've served time mm-hmm. in jail, and he says, I hire, Richard Branson says, I hire convicts. Mm-hmm. I hire convicts that, that have come out of inner cities, who've learned how to survive in an economy where no one else was helping them, because he says they'll often have better skill sets on understanding how to set something up mm-hmm. than would people who've come from, like, Harvard Business School or something. Mm. Now, I don't know if it's true, but that's what he said. <laughs> uh, uh, but I find it um, my, my next... interesting that the industriousness and the organization of these people there during that period of time was there. So as you look at, at, at the lessons, you've talked about this book a lot, but as you've gone around the country, and I sort of remember, I was telling somebody today, remembering old San Diego uh, before you guys had all this gleam come in and these mm. high towers. And, you know, I, I used to come down to San Diego in the 1980s uh, very frequently, and this was a very different area, and, mm. and it may still be. And I'm just sort of interested in communities around the United States that have grown cre- you know, very, very uh, well, and, and whether or not we have communities like this one in Anawandi. Is it Anawandi? A- Anawadi. Anawadi. That are like this that we don't, may, may not even be aware of. Uh, damn straight. I, yeah. mean, you know, I mean, and you think about the housing prices in this community and the growth um, and, you know, and, and, and I, I mentioned, you know, I asked how many of you support your local paper because, um, because what's happening now, I mean, obviously the, the local news is in crisis and um, the, 
you know, the, and unless you you not just you know in this in in this time get your New York Times, get your New Yorker, unless you support your local news, there's you know there's going to be untold hmm. crises in in those communities that will never make it onto the public record. Um, and they, you know, again, it's a, it's this what you mentioned the exploitation. There's going mm. to be exploitation for which that there's no possibility of redress um, without a very strong um, and aggressive uh, local journalism. I mean, you have. I was just thinking about the the San Diego paper did this last month. They did a a really good uh, series on um, wildlife po- poaching and how fish and wildlife doesn't have the inspectors to. Mm. Um, to they're just not staffed to address it. Like that's one. You know, you think about fish and wildlife. You think about what's happening with the environment. There's so much that's going on in in, in this country right now um, that nobody's looking at except for people with vested interests. Um, and that's a very frightening, uh, very very frightening situation for our democracy because it depends on informed citizens. And um, so I'm really concerned. You know, one of the things I'm struggling with in this country right now is the increasing zero-sum tension, the, 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 the sense of a zero-sum competition between different ethnic groups in mm. the United States, immigrants versus non-immigrants, others that, yeah. that you know, kind of pugnacious nationalism. And there's, there's all of that in your story in India. Right, the there's dreamers that political and the party kids. that I can't yeah. remember that... that uh, that sh- How do yeah. you say it? Shisena. Shisena, uh, which, which sounds like a kind of nationalist, anti-immigrant right. uh, uh, political culture that was growing in, in this group and the kind of internal tensions where the, that was going on. Is there any... Do you have any insights from your experience in the slums in India that can help us fix these problems in the United States? Um, yeah, let me tell you how to fix it. But I will tell you, I will tell you that, that what I think, I mean, I'm a reporter. I believe in the division of labor. I believe that you know, there are people yeah. who, who yeah. make policy. But one of the things that's really clear to me is that, that the United States, I mean, both, both public and privately, we invest less in human capital than 30 hmm. OCED countries, we don't really believe in skill development. And that has to do, I think, with, I mean, and, and, and it's to our folly. It's absolutely to our folly. Um, but I think it's, it has something to do with how perniciously the, that low-income people are mm. stereotyped, because there's something about us that, you know, for, there's, there's a, the, we are so invested as a society for people who have the leisure to come uh, tonight and think about poverty or, um, or, or live in the center of a very expensive city, we have this idea that we're, we're invested subconsciously in the idea that, that, that you know, what we have, we deserve, mm. um, and that our society does a pretty great job of sorting the winners and the losers. But what my work tells me every day is that our societies do a terrible job of sorting the one absolutely, absolutely terrible, and that I know that there's just an, you know, that 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 my life is a function of luck, and um, other people's lives are a function of bad luck. And once we, you know, once we, if we, if we can see, if we can really see the capacities of people um, who we call these people, who we call sometimes animals, um, if any of you read the news today. Um, mm-hmm. That you know, if if we start to see who individ- these individuals are, um, we're going to want to invest in 
in developing capacity. We're going you know, to see how much better our, our communities can be when we do that. It's not just a, a gift that we're giving to you know, people who are disadvantaged. It's a gift... You know, it's a gift for, for all of us. It's a gift to the world. What a wonderful near way to almost end. Uh, uh, just two, two just quick questions. Are, are, did, did the community of people you were writing about ever have a chance to either read or have this book read to them? Yeah, they did. Everybody had the part that was about them. I mean, it's the, like people anyway. People really? like, I don't care about my neighbor. I want to read the thing about me. <laughs> Um, How did that go? <laughs> it went well, but you know, I mean, you, that's in, in nonfiction, yeah. like you can't, about writing about vulnerable people, you need to keep people involved in the right. process of yes. reporting on what you're doing because you are, you know, you, it, there's an opportunity to do tremendous damage. Mm. Um, and you need the people in the community to believe in the project, too, and to... Um, well, it was a miracle, because this was so raw and real that it was... A, it, I just wondered what they would have thought Asha, they Asha, got it. Yeah. Asha, the, the woman who, who's the yeah. picture, she said, this is my life, why would I lie? And um, I think that, that they didn't think that, that people... They never think that people in San Diego would be interested in their lives. They told me that it was a bad idea oh. to write about their lives because their lives were boring, um, I want to meet all of them. But but you know yeah. people do. I was I was I was um, on I was in Boise last week and I a guy came and he said um, it was so great talking to Manju and I was like boy he really is took my book to heart and then I realized no he'd gone to the community and met the people. You're kidding. And you know really? he had pictures wow. for them and you know hung out with them and wow. um, had discussions with them. About the you know these issues, and I a guess a great opportunity for one of you to start up a business to create a tour. <laughs> please, to go, please, go please meet don't. Manju please and don't. Asha. Yeah. But you know, it's like if you can if you can get that conversation going and get people listening a little harder. And I can't help but ask, just as we close here, um, what are you secretly working on right now that you wouldn't <laughs> otherwise tell us? Uh, I'm, I'm working on on questions of social mobility in uh, very low income. Uh, high crime areas of the United States, actually Washington, D.C., where I would have said until last week uh, a young African-American man had a lifespan shorter than a young, young man on the Gaza Strip, but that's changed. Um, mm. So, uh, yeah, but I'm looking, what I'm looking at is, is the, the sort of underground railroads to the middle class that people in low-income communities are figuring out for themselves um, when the traditional springboards break down, um, and it's and, and it's it's a, a book that was started by a tip from a felon who had mm. come out of um, the system, a returning citizen. Um, and uh, well, great. I, we'll I, see. <laughs> we can't wait to read that, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, Kate, Kate thank you so much, Kate Boo, behind the beautiful forever's life, death, and hope in a Mumbai undercity. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Thank you so much, Steve. That was, appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.